Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mike Rosehart Show, live every Wednesday around 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So today we will talk about whatever questions you guys have about financial independence, retiring early, and real estate investing. So I'm just gonna leave it completely open-ended. I'm not gonna come up with any fancy uh, titling for today, so it's, it's pretty open-ended. But I will start in the first minute or two while people get the notification and they uh, join the stream, just kind of updating what I've been up to the last little bit here. Um, I've been focused on refinancing a few of my properties, pulling out equity and all those properties that appreciated a ton in the last couple of years. So I've been working hard on that and then selling off a lot of assets that haven't made sense to have in the portfolio. So there's been a lot of opportunities to sell off properties that just didn't fit, don't cash flow anymore because they appreciated a ton. Um, have a partner that you know this is a nice time to exit so this is a good time to clean up the portfolio lock in those gains either through a sale or through a refinance so I've been focused on doing a lot of that um, wherever units turned over we've had the opportunity to, to bring it up to you know modern finishes and get that top uh, market rent which is fantastic and um, yeah I've been life's been good you guys know I'm expecting my third so our, our third born child here my wife is geez, she's definitely over six months pregnant right now. So that's been a trying time having, uh, you know, so much going on in our life right now and cleaning things up uh, financially to prepare for the new year and hit a lot of our targets, actually exceeded most of the targets I had set financially and business-wise, uh, which I'm extremely happy about before the end of the year, already hit a lot of those targets that I had for the start of the year. So I guess everything from this point on is just bonus and uh, even those stretch goals, a lot of those were, were hit. So really happy about that. And um, yeah, uh, life is good. And I see people jumping on. Mike, how you doing? Jermaine says, hey man, hey, how you doing? Two back-to-back -back live streams with Mike. God darn. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Appreciate that. Yeah, on so on Monday, I did a three-hour event from, well, I joined in a little bit before seven, but it went almost three hours, over three hours long. And the Q&A bled into you know 10 o'clock at night. And it was for an event for the Rise Network for charity. And so we raised, I think, $1,700 to that cause. Now I'm gonna get that $1,700 matched by a local car dealership here that's matching all charitable donations. So we're gonna get that charitable donation doubled. And with my birthday presents, people donated to uh, the Boys and Girls Club of London. And we've got over $4,000 in total that I've been able to raise for that cause, which has been great. Um, some way of me giving back to some of the things that helped me when I was growing up. And one of those was, um, one of those was the Boys and Girls Club. And so Boys and Girls Club is a fantastic charity that helps those, you know, at-risk youth and teens get access to, you know, they have someone there to mentor them and help them through. They have programs for, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't have access to the internet. So that was, that was huge. I was in like grade seven, grade eight, not having access to a computer. And that helped a ton in my, you know, especially grade five, grade six. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the after-school programs and the evening drop-in programs, and I, it was great. So I wanted to give back a little bit. And I guess speaking of giving back, today I spent the entire day giving my time. So I donated it to uh, my brother who's moving. So I helped my little brother out and moved him in my vehicle and just gave my good old sweat equity. And you might say, oh, Mike, you're wealthy enough. Why don't you just hire that out? But there's something to be said about you know giving your time. And you can't just give someone money. You have to give your time. And so today I blocked off my entire day to give to my brother. So that's, that's what it's all about, right? It's giving back. That's part of the FIRE movement and especially friends that have helped you, helping them back out, family that's helped you, you know, paying it forward and paying it back. And I think 
that's what this movement's really about at the end of the day is us getting to a degree of financial freedom that we can do that. So yeah, cool. Let's do some questions if there are any. Let's see. Alex says, hello. Hey, Alex. Seema says, hi, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking, actually. Life is, is overall uh, really good. Patrick says, Mike. Thanks for, for joining on, Patrick. Parappa Brahm says, uh, hey, Mike. Does every room need a window? What does, what does ever space need to add a bedroom? So I think what you're trying to say is, um, does the building code require a room to have, a bedroom to have a window? Technically, a bedroom does require a certain amount of natural light. So yes, there's a natural light requirement, which would require a window. But you could achieve that with a solar light tube in the ceiling and not have a window, technically. I have one property where that's the case. So no, you don't necessarily need an egress point from every single um, bedroom. So you could have, my understanding anyway, is that you could have a bedroom with just a door for the means of escape. It doesn't need a second means of escape and get your natural light from a solar tube um, or skylight or something to that effect. So not having a window and would pass. And in a basement, you can have one egress window in say one bedroom and the other one not have an egress window and that's totally acceptable. So good question. And so uh, I guess the second part of your question was what uh, else is needed in a space to be considered a bedroom? I mean, technically a closet would be a given, a door would be a given, um, you, the room would need to be fully finished would be you know a given. Certain headroom requirements, you need the whole room to be over 6'5", including on the way out. You'd need definitely to have, uh, what else would you need? You'd need um, certain percentage of the room to have, I think it's like 610. Depends on where you are. Some municipalities are more relaxed than others. Some like to see a certain average within a bedroom to be considered such. You need plugs in your bedroom, of course, your electrical um, to be taken care of. And you need heat. So if it's a brand new room, you need to drop your heat duct or your you know heat and AC to the floor. You can't have a ceiling duct, it's illegal. The bedroom has to have uh, the duct dropped to the floor. So it needs a heat source as well. Other than that, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head that would make a bedroom legal. Oh, well, when we're thinking of constructing a bedroom, size is also a considerable factor. I think, believe the minimum is 70 or 75 square feet is the minimum you can have for a bedroom. So as an example, a seven by nine room is not a bedroom. That's not legal. Um, even a 10 by six and a half room, not legal. There you go. So there's your, your bedroom. That's as far as I know about bedrooms. And I'm probably missing something, but there's a high level bedroom analysis. Uh, greetings, Mr. Rosa. Greetings, D. How to. Good to see you on. Um, three is the most ideal. Congrats. Yeah, I think three is a good number, and we're happy with that. Um, I don't know if I'll ever go. People ask you, and getting over four, I don't know. Right now, three is, is great. William says, Good evening. Hey, William. Good to see you on. William says, Mike, what? What's it take to get you into an electric car? I want to talk you into a used Chevy Volt. I really like my car, thank you. Yeah, William, I've been thinking about the Chevy Volt. I've heard really good things about it. Um, geez, I, I really do need to get into a uh, electric car only because I have the e-charger in my garage already. The previous owners to my house had a Tesla. And so I've been considering 
um, getting on your car for some time. But the challenge with the, and I don't know if you, if the Volt can, uh, has six seats, but my Mazda 5 has three rows of seating. So it has two, two, and two. So I have six seats. And so I need a vehicle that would be able to, to do the same sort of thing. Because having three kids in a Chevy Volt, I don't know, maybe it's possible. I'd have to look into it. Send me some links if you got info. I, I hear the resale value um, gets pretty favorable after about three years. Ford Focus all the way. There you go. I used to have, I've had two Ford Focuses. Um, I love the Ford Focus. You know, I loved it so much I got another one after we got the first one. Of course, both used, both in the $3,000 range to, to buy and to, well, we sold them for around the same price. So there's almost no cost ownership for the car. Bought it in cash, sell it, you know, for around what you bought it for. So total cost, almost nothing. Ford Focus is a very reliable vehicle. You can fit a full eight foot two by four in it. It's great for hauling materials like toilets and vanities if you're gonna do work. Um, and it's also very efficient on gas and cheap, cheap, cheap to maintain. Cheap on oil changes, cheap for tires, brakes, whatever. It's a very, very low cost of ownership vehicle that tends to be fairly reliable. So big fan of the Ford Focus. Uh, it's a cheap $3,000 car that's gonna be very reliable. Jamie retracted their question. Hmm, I wonder what the question was. Oh, thanks. Someone gave the king symbol and waved. Didi, I appreciate that. Jamie says, hi, Mike. I've been following you for quite a while. First time joining you in your live stream. Jamie, awesome. Well, thank you for jumping on and, and hopefully you have a question or just here to learn and listen and that's cool too. Caleb says, Mike, thanks for doing the Rise event. It was good info, dude. Hey, no problem. I was happy to help. And it was all for a good cause. So that's what brought me out for a, it was actually quite draining to, to present in that. Especially, I got really drained, really demotivated when my internet died midway through. Gah! Bell is the worst. If you guys remember who were on that live stream, there was like 150 people or so in that. And uh, my internet just kept dying. It would not connect. It was just some reason my computer did not want to stay connected so i don't know if it was a laptop issue or if it was a wi-fi issue um, i think it was a wi-fi issue more so at the modem than the router so it was a provider issue and that's just bell for you in canada they're supposed to be the most reliable i used to have rogers at my last house and similar type shutdown problems it's just across the network uh the key is to have two two different providers so rogers and bell in your house get a low plan for both and boom boom you have the guarantee reliability. Every deal on MLS in Ottawa is complete garbage. That's a bold statement, someone just said. So Andrew McGlennon. I don't know if I would go as far as to agree with that because you know, it's all about the lens in which you look at the deal. So maybe the lens in which you're looking at the deal is not the right lens. Could be. There's probably a deal out there. I think there's a deal in every market all the time on MLS. Anyway, usually one in 100 meets the 1% rule. A lot have less than three caps. How do you find good deals these days? Foreclosures, etc. So Andrew, a good deal might not meet the 1% rule. I've taken down good deals that met the 0.7 rule. And that's because they had a 0.3 rule exit, right? Like you said. So there, to me, a good deal is one in which you get a full burr. Regardless of cash flow, that takes the cake. Now, if you can get a deal that cash flows and a deal that is a burr, that's the ultimate, right? The best thing about a burr is that after three months or four months or five months when you're finished the renovation, you can sell it and double your down payment. That's the goal in any deal that you take down. That's more important to me, getting 100% return on my investment than the cash flow. You get more of a lift buying quality deals. And there are tons of quality deals. 
on realtor.ca. There's a bunch in London right now. I was looking like three, four. I'm not gonna give them away because I got people who are, who are spying them right now, but I got deals that they need some work or that you know someone hasn't looked at with the right lens and with the right rehab, with the right wall here or there, it's duplexable, it was a way to add a unit, it was a way to make the play so that it has good appreciation, forced value add, and still does cash flow decently. But you're right, the days of the 1% rule are slimmer and slimmer. I picked up, well, the sixplex I just picked up, duplex I just picked up, and a triplex um, were courting. Um, and another duplex are all properties that get very close to the 1% rule, very close. So the, the big piece is the next year, once I've rehabbed it, then it's a 1% rule, right? Um, so it's about thinking, how can I add value to this to make it a 1% rule? I don't think on, on its face, any deal is gonna be 1% rule unless it has really bad tenants or something in a bad area, there's something really, really wrong with it. In this market, that will be, I mean, the market this is at like a five, six, seven cap rate, very, very common. So it's gonna be hard to find a 10 or 11 cap rate when there's a market price. It's like saying, hey, Mike, there's no Bitcoin at 5,000 anymore. It's all like 18,000. And it's like, if I could bring you Bitcoin at 14, you should be happy. Or if I, if I can find that off market for you. Right? Someone wanted to sell their Bitcoin for less than market price. That's still a good deal, in my opinion. Now, I hate Bitcoin. I'm not a big crypto fan at all, mostly because I believe that, uh, you know, mostly because I believe it doesn't cash flow, it doesn't produce anything. It's just, um, you have to sell it to someone else for more than you bought it for, which is a scary way to be investing. That's uh, more speculation than it is proper, uh, proper investment. Okay. Um, good evening, Andrew, by the way. Thank you for that question. Not to hate on you at all. I, I totally feel your sympathies with finding deals right now. I've actually feeling the opposite. I've, I've been feeling like my general comment would be all the off-market stuff I'm seeing is trash. All the off-market stuff on Kijiji, on Facebook, all the off-market stuff the wholesalers are peddling. It's a lot of overpriced trash. And not all of it, like there's, there's good stuff. But I mean, it used to be that everything off-market was awesome. Now like more than half of what I see is not awesome. Um, so some of what I see in the wholesale stuff is equivalent to what you're seeing on MLS. So just be careful out there, people. And finding a deal now is in my, finding a full burr right now, people, you know, the question came up on the rise event on Monday, uh, Monday night, they were like, Hey, it's not 2012 anymore, Mike, like you invested in some of the best times to ever invest. Granted, I invested at the right time, given there's been so much appreciation, but when I was investing, it was hard to burr. They, they weren't everywhere. They were hard to find and hard to do. They're easier now. If you picked up any property in 2019, it was a full burr because the appreciation carried you. In a hot market like this, it's easier to burr. And that sounds crazy, but like, because you're getting so much of a lift as you're, like, as you're buying it, right? You put it under contract, you close a couple months later, take it down. By the time you're done your renovations, in hot markets, you've already gained so much without doing any work and appreciation, right? Um, that. And also in a hot market, by the way, you can push the upper ranges. It's a lot easier to convince an appraiser to push those upper ranges. Back in the old days when markets were flat or when markets were declining, it's really hard to convince an appraiser of a burr. But it's a lot easier to do it in a market like this. So be blessed. We're actually in a better time to be burring now than ever before. People are saying, oh, there's, you know, oh, there's, there's so many more distressed houses back then. It's like, no, I'm seeing tons of distressed houses now that need work. You got to put the effort in. You got to put the work in to get the burr. Um, tons of opportunity out there. Now, I would say there's more opportunity, I see more opportunity with my eyes in London now than I did five years ago. 
And maybe it's because these eyes are trained now, they know what to look for, but I see more burrs now than I did then. So I, I just don't even like that question. Like, oh, it was five years ago. It was so much easier. No, assuming the market stays flat from here on out. Let's say there's no more appreciation. We just go flat from 2020 out. We just go back to 2015 when things didn't appreciate. Because in London in 2015, like things were not appreciating. It's like you hold that property from 2012, 2015, you got no appreciation. Like you should expect to sell it for what you bought it for unless you put money into it or changed it in some way. And that was the norm. We will go back to that. That will happen. And when it does, I think that it's going to be harder to burr. It's going to be harder for investors to make money in real estate. Now, again, we've been lucky. The real estate market's been great. So let's all enjoy that, all of us who have bought properties. But those of us who haven't, there's still opportunity. And there might be more opportunity in the coming years. I think that you know next year, things are going to be a little tight for some people. And um, there might be opportunity there. So wherever there's problems, there's profit. So look for the problems. Look for those properties that are not desirable. They're the ones that are most desirable, actually. The ones no one wants are the ones you want. Caleb, question. When you're just starting out, no money and low risk, is it more important to build that nest egg of money to make a down payment or getting good at finding and bringing deals to the money? Caleb, I personally think that the fastest way to build money in real estate is by learning how to perfect the deal, the art of finding the deal. And if you can learn to bring good deals to the table, the money will come, it will follow. So I think the deal is the better place to start. Of the, of the three quadrants of, to a deal, right? The, the money, the management, and the deal. I think the deal is the most important, the management is the second most important, and the money is the least important. The money is the easiest to find, especially like the top 25% of people have more money than they've ever had. There's so much money. Everyone owns a property in Toronto or Vancouver, or anyone owns a property period for the last 10 years has hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, free capital they could tap into. So money is everywhere. Most homeowners have money. And so it's everywhere, it's not that important. But saving for your nest egg, very important. Even though you're wholesaling or whatever you're doing, or trying to learn about deals, trying to work full time, be living frugally and saving as much as you possibly can. That's how you get ahead, is saving as much as you possibly can. Frugality is the key. And keeping expenses lean will allow you to build massive amounts of wealth so you can enjoy yourself later. Okay, whoa, we got some questions popping up. Good, good, good. I like that. What sort of things would you look for in a real estate coach starting all over again? Um, good question. I don't think a real estate coach would have been for me. To be honest, I'm a bit of a flake. And I don't think that I would have done well with just one coach. So I never used a real estate coach. But I've had tons of mentors. And that's people that I can call on, people I take to lunch, people like, even your realtor. If you get one, got two or three realtor contacts to talk to, or two or three investors to talk to. Get differing opinions and combine the best from each. I think that's the best way to go. Uh, I'm a big fan of getting many different mentors to listen to, and those mentors, you don't have to pay them anything necessarily. You could pay them um, and get more faster and grow quicker. I think a lot of coaches sell shortcuts that aren't really shortcuts, and sometimes you need, I was reading a good article actually the other day by, um, oh shoot, who was it by? Um, or sorry, the, the guy who was interviewed in the article was um, one of the dragons, Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban was talking about how he hates mentorship and he was talking about coaching, paid coaching. And he was talking, and he had a good point, like part of what he said I didn't, just didn't quite agree with, but he was talking about needing to get the experience, needing to grind, to learn through the grind. And he talks about like when people ask him for mentorship, he's, he tells them to go out and grind because you need that experience to get to that next level. 
And some of that just comes from doing, from failing and doing. And so you can't, like mentors try to, or I guess coaches try to tell you, you can just jump all the steps and get to the, the grassy knoll and just enjoy life, right? Uh, but it's, it doesn't work that way. You have to go through the pain points to get the learning outcome. Now you can get there faster and you can get there, you know, I, I think in a more efficient route, but there are certain roadblocks and pain points you have to physically hit to really understand and learn from. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of mentorship. You guys know that, but I think there is no shortcut to becoming wealthy. You have to grind it. Anyone who got wealthy quickly, probably lucky. Wealth takes, wealth is guaranteed slow build. That's how you should look at building wealth. It will happen 100% if you stick to a set of core principles and you're consistent to that. You will build wealth, you'll get rich. That's, anyone can be wealthy. If you're on minimum wage right now, you can be a millionaire in 25 years. The math suggests even on minimum wage, you can save, you can scrape together enough, start investing, start building, and eventually you'll get to a million bucks. Uh, if you're making more than that, you can get to 10 million, 100 million in your lifetime, all possible. You just gotta set goals and gotta be consistent. You gotta move. And as you, it may seem insurmountable now, but you know, like two, three, four, five years into your journey, you'll be operating at a different level. And so you'll be able, you'll be able to grow faster than you thought you could when you were, I guess the saying is you can, people think they can do more in a year than they can, but people think they can do a lot less in 10 years than they actually can. So I like that saying, I think Bill Gates has been quoted saying that. I don't know if he was the one who said that or not. I'm not sure. But um, next question. Do, 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 do. The next one we're gonna go with is this one. Hey Mike, congrats on the third edition to your family. Back for the live stream. Cheers, William and Don. Hey, thank you, William and Don. Didi says, I love that you can check the maintenance prices of Ford online. There you go. Hmm. I didn't know you probably can do that for most maintenance of most vehicles. It's probably a website for it or an app these days that plugs into your car in some way and tells you. I, I saw an ad for that. D how to, a lot of the eviction moratoriums and forbearances moratoriums in the United States are supposed to end on December 31st, 2020. Do you have a prognostication, which is basically like feeling a prediction on what may happen if they're not extended? Um, I don't know. They probably will be extended, to be honest. There's a fairly good likelihood that they'll be extended. Um, but if they aren't, there was some interesting data that I've been looking at and some articles that I had read recently, but again, I'm not an expert by any means, but what I had found was that um, the majority of, and actually this even touched on a little bit in the real estate prediction on the rise event on Monday, and they were talking about uh, mortgage um, deferrals and mortgage you know, for forbearances and things like that. Most of the people who applied for those tended to be those with high FICO scores, high credit scores. Those folks aren't going to default. And so I think the default rates are overstated more than they really will be. We're seeing a lot of wealthy people that took advantage of you know, the government relief programs that probably shouldn't have. But a lot of those numbers, like people like, hey, like billions and billions of dollars in stimulus, a lot of the people collecting that didn't need it. Um, so you gotta be careful of that. The other thing is the top you know, 25% of society, they're doing better than they've ever done. They're spending less, they're working from home, so they need to spend even less. Um, their investments are growing at all time highs. Money is just being like, it's just being grown at crazy rates right now. Crazy, crazy rates. Hey, there's a super chat. Nicholas Daniels, thank you for the 
the $1.99 super chat. I appreciate that. I'm 21 with $132,000. I'll be retired at 29. I mean, at 21, I don't even think I had that kind of net worth. At 21, I had taken out my first house at 19, so I was two years into my first house. I was looking to get my second one. Actually, you're probably on track right where I was at your age of 21. Wow, I mean, you might even been a little bit ahead of me depending on the equity in my house. I can't remember what exactly it was worth, but um, even a little bit ahead of me. So I mean, totally possible, totally possible. You'd be surprised. It's hard to get your first million, but your second million comes so easy. Same is true for your first 100 grand. It's harder to save your first 100 grand than it is to get your you know, first you know, 250. I think it starts to snowball and grow. And, and you know, once you've leveled, it's like your experience levels up at the same time as your money levels up. Your money starts making more money and you start you know, operating at a higher level and that together you know, helps you really grow to the next level. So I'm just playing with the light behind me. Just having a little bit of fun there. Um, that's cool though. I love that, Nicholas. That's awesome. Going up here to the question I was at before. Okay, found it again. Um, does the USA charge extra tax on foreign investors' rental income? I mean, I'm Canadian, so um, I don't have an expert working knowledge of the tax system, but I think they do charge, I know at least in Canada, they charge both, there's, a, there's tax treaties between most countries, but Canada and the US have a tax treaty. And so if you're a Canadian citizen investing in the US, you'll pay tax in the US on that income, and then you'll also pay tax in Canada, but you'll get a tax credit from the United States for the tax you paid in the US. And the same works the other way. That's what tax treaties do between countries. So you, you will get a credit for what you paid in the country in which the rental property exists. But yes, you're gonna have to pay tax in the country in which you live in and file in. They're gonna want a piece. Now, if you were to move out of that country, you don't wanna be a tax resident, that's an option. The most simple option is to start a corp and have that corp own the property. That would simplify things quite a bit. You're not having to file anything on your personal return because it's all sitting inside of your corp. So that's how I invest in um, foreign, is investing in another country and doing that. Okay, um, the second part of the question is, is it complicated to buy a property in the States? Love all your videos, thank you. Uh, Kent, it, no, not necessarily. My favorite preferred way to invest in property in another country is to partner with someone in that country and do a joint venture partnership where they're the tax resident and they qualify for the mortgage. Much easier way to invest in a foreign country. But yeah, you could, I mean, people do it all the time. It's not necessarily that difficult. Um, TD, for instance, is open to 25% down in funding vacation homes. So you could get a second home or something in Florida or Arizona or somewhere nice. A Canadian might wanna go in the winter. Uh, but yeah, totally doable. If I was gonna do it, I'd do it. And it depends again on so many factors, right? Like if you're gonna buy this property and it's gonna be just your vacation place, that might be different than if you're buying it solely for income producing, right? So if it's just gonna be income producing, then corp obviously all day long. But um, I guess it depends on so many different factors. And talk to your accountant, they would be able to qualify this much better than, than I can. Respect for finding someone to double that donation. Yeah, exactly. We gotta get as much as we can to charity. Talk about this sixplex you acquired last week on the MLS. So that one's a good one. I'm really excited about. Um, it's on the MLS. It popped up, and in two days it was it was actually sold. And I got in there, and when the person backed out. My offer was waiting. I had a cash offer waiting to go, no conditions, nothing. I went in hard, and the reason for that is because I knew this buyer was had had an issue before with someone selling it. 
they had underpriced the house, and if they had let it go on MLS proper, it would have sold for a hundred thousand over. I don't think they knew what they had. That was that's a big piece. Is people don't know what they have. Even the agent didn't know what they had, and the property needed a little bit of work. So the lift on this thing, you know, I bought it for five fifty. It's worth about a million. So I just got to lift it by you know renovating it all and bringing it up to today's codes, making it nice. There's lots of things I can do to you know unlock the value. But it had some issues, like um, knob and two was an issue that it had. Um, there's a lot of little things that this property had that are scary things that to me are not scary, right? It has a, a flat roof and I'll ex fix that and it'll be no big deal, right? Um, so yeah, the numbers worked really well. The rents were rents were a little low. Um, thankfully, there's some asbestos and knob and two in one of the units that we're gonna, it's not disturbed right now, but we are gonna have to remove. And the beautiful thing is we can reno, the, the, do the reno eviction because we have to get those things out. And um, in the process, we'll probably change the unit substantially. So it's not the same unit that it was before. Um, we might combine units. We could, um, you can change like, one bedroom to a bachelor or something to that effect, just so that it's not the same unit. And it, it'll probably take so long that the tenant likely won't want to go back in or the timing won't work out just right. So hopefully we get, end up with, uh, with a vacant unit. That's the ideal. So we can place our own tenants. I hate inheriting tenants. I much prefer to acquire my own tenants where I can vet them, I can credit check them, I can pick the perfect tenant that's gonna be easy, low maintenance for me, not gonna complain and pay you know great rent. So thanks for the super chat, by the way, Kent. Really appreciate that. Kent just sent a super chat. Um, what else can we talk about here about that property? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just about knowing what you want and watching the market like a hawk. I had other agents call me they knew that I picked it up and it's on my Instagram stories. I had an agent call me and say, Hey, I'll pay you a $50,000 assignment fee for that contract. And that's with the MLS deal. So be, it's crazy what you can find out there on MLS and especially if you know what you're looking for. And yeah, I mean, there's lots of deals I miss out on too that people snag and grab and yeah. Okay. Um, that's not the only one I picked up half a dozen this year like that. And that's without me even really trying. Like I'm kind of just passively looking Next question. Hey Mike, I have some questions. I couldn't really find an easy and clear answer on the internet. Okay, let's hear it, Steven. Steven says, let's say you buy a home worth $100,000 with 10% down because that's the most you can put down on the first home you bought in real estate. So that means you have to get a mortgage insurance as well. When that home doubles in value, improbable, but just as an example, how do you get rid of the mortgage insurance? So that's a great question actually, Steven. And I'd be happy to explain it here. So the way mortgage insurance works at 5% down or 10% down is here in Canada. Anyway, I'll explain. In the U.S. it's better. It's called private mortgage insurance or PMI. And in the U.S., I believe it's a, a monthly fee. And if you get to a point where you refinance out and you're 80% loan to value, you don't have to pay it anymore. In Canada, it's an upfront fee. So here in Canada, CMHC and Genworth and the other companies that provide the same type of mortgage insurance, they charge you a fee upfront. So on a 5% down deal, in some cases, depending on the price, the amount they charge you is based on the price of the house. So the more expensive houses are a little bit more. But it works out to something like 5% down costs you a 4% of the purchase price fee. So you put 5% down, CMHC takes a fee, and they register on title equivalent to 4%. So you lose almost your entire down payment, gone. Uh, that's what sucks about buying less than 20% down, is they're large fees. Uh, however, they do let you advertise it over a long period of time. So if you're gonna hold the property, for a long period of time, it could make sense. If you couldn't have otherwise gotten into a deal, you couldn't have borrowed the money to get a 20% down from any other source, and you were stuck and you had to do the five or 10% down, it can make sense to get you into a deal if it's the right deal. 
But the other advantage, which more recently has become more acute, is that the banks are afraid of market crash. And so insured mortgages right now, insured by CMHC or Genworth, et cetera, here in Canada, they're giving them really discounted interest rates. So you can right now buy, I believe on a five-year fixed, a 1.49% mortgage. And that's because it's an insured mortgage. If you put 20% down, so if you put 5% down, you get a 1.49%. You put 20% down, it's like a 1.99% in many cases. So it's like 25% higher interest costs, in which case if you run the numbers over a 10-year period, the CMHC insured mortgage is actually cheaper. You put less down, and because the differential interest rates right now for insured mortgages, the re and I'll explain in a sec why this makes sense because the bank's thinking the market might crash, put 20% down, they could lose their money. But if Genworth and CMHC are guaranteeing the mortgage amount to the bank, the bank feels safer. So they lower their interest rate that they're offering. So it's very, very attractive for the bank. And so it can make sense. Um, but the way that it would work is if you ever sell or refinance later, you're stuck, you've paid that fee. So let's say in one year, you buy this property and doubles in value. So you bought this property for $100,000, you put $10,000 down for easy math. You know, that's the question you have there. It jumps to $200,000 in value. There's $100,000 in equity that has just been created. So now your $10,000 investment is, you know, 10X. So that's fantastic because leverage, you put $1 down, the bank put $9 down with mortgage insurance guaranteed. Now, if you go refinance that or sell the property, on a $100,000 purchase, you would have paid, I guess, like a $4,000 fee. On a $500,000 purchase, you'd pay a $20,000 fee to the private mortgage insurance provider that allowed you to put less than 20% down. So you pay for the luxury of putting less than 20% down. People think it's some government program that's like free. It's not. Like CMHC is a private corporation that does very, very well. They insure mortgages less than 20% for the bank and you pay for it dearly. A lot of people think that it, I don't know, for some reason, think it's a government program that's like free. And I'm like, no, you're paying for it big time. You're paying for it in your mortgage. Your mortgage balance, they're going to add that 4% right to your mortgage balance the day you close. And you're going to pay interest on that at the interest rate. Now, again, it can make sense because the interest rates are so favorable for insured mortgages right now. The bank is afraid. They're afraid of a pullback. They're afraid of a, of a bit of a recession, right? So something to think about. Um, and actually, for the first time, the 5% down and the 10% down makes a lot of sense, Steve. But... Um, how do you get rid of it? You don't. Um, if you ever refinance or sell, you'll have paid off that fee to them, but it's an upfront fee. In the US, I believe there are companies that offer a monthly fee, and if you get to a certain loan to value, they stop. But here in Canada, it's an upfront, uh, tacked right on the mortgage day one. And if you pay it off now or you pay it off in 20 years, it's the same cost. So if you're going to pull the equity out and refinance at some point, you end up paying for it. Um, it's cheaper. Well, it used to be until the interest rate differential right now for insured mortgages is so large that it's actually not cheaper to borrow the difference and put 20% down anymore. It is better to do the 5% or 10% down with CMHC and pay the fee um, because of the interest rate differential right now. Pro tips. I, I did a video two, three years ago, I think like two and a half years ago, where I said the insured mortgages are the worst and stay away from them. And I was wrong. Um, I said, there's almost no situation where I thought it would make sense. And the difference right now between 20% down mortgages and 5% down mortgages in the interest rate is so large that it almost offsets the fee if you're planning to hold this for a long term. If it's a flip, don't think about less than 20% down. If you're going to be there less than five years, don't think about it. If you plan to burr it or refinance it, don't do the 5% down thing, of course. But if you're planning to buy this property, not refinance it, not run away at any value, just buy it, hold it, you know, live in it, whatever, rent it out, I don't care. 
I think the program requires you to live in it, but whatever. If that's your plan, you're gonna hold it long-term, makes sense. Plans to renovate it, burr it, refinance it, sell it, don't, just do 20% down. So that's kind of the qualifier right now, given current market conditions. William says, Mike, what are your thoughts about stock market these days? Feels like a bit of a bubble if the super cheap money is ever taken away. I bought in May considering dumping just before year end used options. Yeah, William, I think that, um, that's fantastic, by the way, that you bought at the right time, right? May was a great time to buy. I was talking about there being tons of opportunities. I think there's still opportunity out there. I think that, you know, when we're looking at the market and we're thinking about, you know, where do things move from here? The government is continuing in both Canada, the United States, all over the world. They're printing money and they're for forcing suppression of interest rates down to all-time lows, right? What that's doing is inflating the value of everything, right? So companies are increasing in value, gold, silver, you know, whatever, everything except for the, because as you print more currency, the currency itself becomes worth less. And so if you're holding on to cash, that's a dangerous thing right now. So don't hold on to cash right now. Um, that would be what I would say is try to be not holding on to too, too much cash right now. Because I do think that they're devaluing the currency. So that's, that's where I think being in the market is better than being in cash. But you know, being diversified is key. Being very, very diversified is important. I like dividend type plays too that, that pay cash flow. I like to invest in companies that I believe in long-term, like stable, consistent, like utility type companies. They're all favorites of mine. Um, but yeah, there's there's opportunity out there for sure. You might sell off something you bought in May that's tripled in value and, and buy something else um, that's poised to recover. Like maybe travel might be something that's gonna come back and you can invest in that or commercial real estate or something, right? But um, yeah, I mean, of course you should, if it makes sense, you should harvest some gains. Steven says, refinancing if it is still owned 10% in equity. Thank you in advance you read this. So, is that part of the original question? How do you get rid of mortgage insurance by refinancing? So as soon as you're, as soon as you're uh, refinancing and you're going for like 80% loan to, whatever you refinance, you don't refinance 95% loan to value. You always refinance 80% loan to value. So you can't refinance with a 5% down. You lose that, off, that privilege. It's now on one of those mortgages where it's five or 10% down, Stephen, you are now gonna be 20% down. As soon as the equity's there, you've lost the benefit of being 5% down. You can never refinance to that amount ever again. It'll always be 80% loan to value. So you'll always have at least 20% down going forward. Um, you lose the right. It's only on purchase that you have that right. So the best way to do it is to buy 5% down and do a purchase plus improvements for like 60 grand and then do a reno and do the reno yourself and get the work down for like 30 and then you get an extra 30 so you're negative. Um, yeah. TD says 51 viewers right now, 52 actually on my screen, 53 now. Um, people streaming World of Warcraft and thousands of viewers face bomb. I mean, people don't want to get ahead, right? They don't want to talk about finance. They don't want to talk about their money. 80% like of people don't want to face reality. They want to face the music, right? But you guys are here today. You're trying to improve yourselves. And that's important. I think that's um, it's admirable. Maybe I should play some World of Warcraft at the same time. That would probably help. <laughs> I used to play pretty heavy, so that wouldn't be a hard, hard challenge other than setting up the rig and figuring out how to Twitch stream it all and do this at the same time. This is easy, I plug and play. Okay, um, next question says, Raz says, is it expensive to separate electrical meters when converting house into duplex? Yes, I don't do it. Also, when would you split the heating costs or how would you split the heating costs between tenants? One way is to just say, hey, the space is 55% for the upper unit, 45% for the lower unit, it's one shared furnace, 
You will pay 55% of the heating bill, you will pay 45% of the heating bill. It's based on square footage. And so you could just split the bills that way. I've done that for utilities too at Hydro. I'd say, hey, you pay 60%, you're a three bedroom unit, they're a two bedroom unit, they pay 40%. That's the rule. You have to fight it out between each other if one person's using more than the other. Uh, you deal with those type of conflicts. But for the most part, there's not major abuses, right? So I don't ever separate my duplexes. I don't think it adds value. I like to do inclusive in my in my units. I'm, I put maximums in my leases. So all inclusive of utilities up to a maximum. If it exceeds the, this maximum amount of say 250 a, a month, you pay. Uh, you pay that additional amount, put that right in the lease. So I don't go through the cost um, bonus, I guess some people call it a bonus to have them separately metered, but it doesn't have any value for resale. It doesn't have any value for appraisal. Um, most investors don't care. It doesn't add anything for the cap rates really. Um, I think the, the cap rates are actually better all inclusive. I get higher appraisals doing the all inclusive because I got higher gross rents and I bake in extra. Like I'll do most units rent for say $14.95, um, let's say plus utilities, but I can rent that same unit for like $17.95 inclusive. So I'm getting 300 bucks from an upper unit and say 200 bucks from a lower unit. And my utilities are not 500 bucks a month. They're like 350, 400. So I'm actually making profit on doing all inclusive, assuming I place good tenants. So. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of splitting up my utilities. That's just a personal preference. Jeez, I've been going long here. I gotta wrap this up here in a few minutes. So I'm gonna go on rapid fire mode. This is the Rose Heart lightning round. What's your net worth annual expenditure? I'm not gonna share those right now, but um, I'm ex I can be extremely frugal. My lean fire number is like 24 grand a year I can live on. My fat fire number is like, you know, 100 grand a year. Um, so that's kind of where I, I can float in between either of those lulls to Bitcoin. <laughs> Miro says, it's not true what you said about crypto. You can get 5% plus interest on your crypto. There are a bunch of platforms like Nexo or BlockFi, which will pay you high interest. Interesting. So you're, well, okay. You could lend out your cash right now and make a 10% return on it, right? So that's a given. Like any currency right now in cash, you can make 10%. Um, being crypto, you, I guess you could lend out, you could lend out your, your currency for liquidity and make some interest. That's true. I've even heard of people getting 10%. Uh, interest lending out their their uh, currency so I, that's true that's a fair point you could those are two separate ideas though like when you're investing in crypto you're not investing in a business you're buying a currency right um, i like to invest in businesses where my money can grow and create value and then pay me a dividend crypto doesn't necessarily do that now you could own this currency of crypto and then lend that crypto out and do private lending with crypto for sure um that's a fair point you know, people brought that up to me that it's an interesting thing to explore doing the crypto lending for a small percentage of your, of your net worth, I think could make sense for a doomsday type scenario to have a little crypto. It's a nice diversification. People are really getting on board with it. I was against it. I didn't believe in it as a, a store of value, but if enough people believe in it, it becomes the currency, right? All we need is a, someone to go get behind it and, and back it, right? Hey Mike, what are your thoughts on stock options trading. Um, big fan. I think it's a better way than trading stock itself. I think it's smarter to trade options. I'm going to get into that more in the new year and specifically give my advice on that and, and at least my thoughts on it. I agree with you on the Burr in 2012. In 2012, when the economy was in a recession or depression, everything seemed overpriced, even though prices were lower. I mean, I think there was opportunity everywhere if you knew where to look. It's just there wasn't the lift that you got today. So good points to get out to. Uh, Jamie says, I've been a minimum wage worker for a few years now and struggled with money when I was younger. I found your video about retiring on minimum wage and it gave me so much hope. So thank you. Hey, thank you, Jamie. Appreciate that. 
yeah, it's all about getting expenses down, potentially getting a roommate or house hacking, rent hacking, those types of major expenditure shifts will allow you to start putting money away. Once you start putting money away, you'll be able to increase your income. And to replicate a minimum wage income doesn't take that long or that much money to do, right? So if you're starting with a low income, the power of fire is, is exponentially life-changing. Congrats on the third edition to your family. Thank you, Diab, too. DD says, even Einstein called compound interest the eighth wonder of the world. It's true. I mean, all of us should be making choices today that'll better our future tomorrow and take advantage of the eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. It's something I've been taking advantage of. It'll someday provide me with, like, I'll have a nine-figure, yeah, pro probably. I'll probably have a nine-figure net worth while I'm still young enough, to, young enough to enjoy it in my 60s, right? Because the power of compound interest, right? Money just keeps growing and doubling every five to seven years. Hey Mike, what are your thoughts on stock options trading? Big fan of stock options trading, but you gotta be very careful. Uh, make sure you set loss, stop losses, right? For what you're doing, make sure you're selling it. If a contract's nearing expiration, you sell it off, right? So you don't have to deal with those mega losses if you make a bad decision. But yeah, it can make a lot of sense and you can make, I know guys that are doing two, 3% return a month, stock option trading. And so I'm gonna take uh, Erwin Sazito's course on stock hacking and I'll let you guys know. I actually have it, I just haven't dug into it. Mike, what are your thoughts on individual stocks? I currently have 40,000 USD in stocks and been getting a 20% return. Did you think uh, I getting a 20% return? Do you think I need to start doing real estate? Thanks. Um, you know, honestly, I think if you're getting a 20% consistent return and you're able to continue to replicate that, you're probably for now, given you only have $40,000, able to get a better return on your cash. You take it to a point where say you get like, depends on your area, I guess. So $40,000 gets you like a between $150,000 and $200,000 house and leave you some money to renovate, right? So the beautiful thing about real estate is you're levered when you buy it. So you could buy a house for 150, renovate it for 50 and it'd be worth 300. And if you only put $40,000 down, you could make yourself a $100,000 return on $40,000 down. That could be a 200% return in a year. Not uncommon because of leverage. You're five to one levered, or if you do 5% down, you're 20 to one levered. So that can be make a 10% return in real estate. That can make it worth, you know, 200% return. So that's the advantage in real estate is you're levered, a security against a safe asset that produces cash flow. So that's what I like about real estate. It'll always be a piece of my portfolio. But yeah, I think that it can be great money trading in, uh, in the stock market as well. And it's a lot more passive too. You can shut it off, whereas it's hard to shut off real estate. How to master the art of finding the deal. Books, podcasts, courses. Um, good question. Practice. Practice. There are lots of good books though on um, negotiation. Look at any book on negotiation. Look up books on... Um, uh, I think I could go to appraisal book. Look up the fundamentals of appraisals. Um, is a good one to have too. Um, just understand how properties are valued. I think that's how you can determine a good deal is understanding the construction piece, understanding how properties are are valued and come come to that value so you can understand how to unlock it. That's a big piece of the real estate expertise and then the negotiation piece is important too. Good question though. Garrett says, what are your thoughts on COVID vaccines? Do you think we'll begin to open the economy, lack of restrictions when the vaccines come out? I think it's likely that in 2021, first quarter, we will have a vaccine that is widely available towards the end of first quarter. I think it's very likely. And I think a lot of people are not gonna take the vaccine, but Anyone who's high risk or, you know, most of the people who are dying are over 70, right? Or at high risk individuals. 
And so those individuals should take it for sure. I think that that would be huge to, um, to allowing us to, to remove restrictions. Because those of us who don't want, let's say there's those who don't want to take the, the virus or don't want to take the vaccine or are okay with the, accepting the virus, then there's no restriction needed to protect those individuals because they're not worried. But then everyone who needs a protection has has the vaccine available. So I think that will lift restrictions and help us a lot, but we'll see. It's been a lot of a control grab. And we have a super chat. Jamie says, I'm, in a, I'm a bit late, but how would you do it? From Edmonton, 27, spouse, 29, no kids, no debt, no property, save six months emergency fund, building credit now. I save 100% of my pay, currently making $23, $25 an hour. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, definitely, that's amazing. You're able to save such a high percentage of your income. In no time, you'll start building to a point of um, have net worth where you can start snowballing downhill. One thing that I find concerning almost is the no debt, interestingly. I think you should go into, if you went into every, you may have a good job, good income. If you went into every single credit union and bank right now and you asked for a $15,000 line of credit, you'd probably get it all at once. You went to every single bank, like TD, CIBC, you know, BMO, whatever, Scotiabank. You asked for 15,000 all at once. You probably get approved for 15 or 20,000 every single one. That would give you over $100,000 in unsecured access to capital at 6%. Take that and use that to start investing, right? If you didn't have any available capital, but you have an emergency fund, you're saving aggressively, you're in a really good position to take on some debt, but use the debt for um, Never Split the Difference is a great book, Alex. Um, I think you should check that book out too on negotiations. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're in a great position to be able to, to move forward, right? And start saving. And I think having no kids too is, is key for um, your mobility as well, right? So you, now that your credit, you said you're, you're building your credit now. If your credit gets to a point where you have a little bit of established credit, you could totally buy, especially if you have you and your spouse together, your, your income, your 20, $25 an hour, 25 bucks an hour gives you like almost 50 grand a year, depending on the hours you work, almost 50 grand a year in income. If your partner's making the same, you know, like almost a six figure combined income, and that's enough to buy a property for sure. For sure, um, yeah. So how would how would uh, would I do it? I'd, I'd go buy a property and start house hacking right now. So I'd go buy something you could duplex, go buy a property with spare rooms or whatever, a basement apartment, something like that, where you can live for free. So first thing you do is live for free. Then you can start saving your spouse's income too. And it'll also allow you to build equity. You can start renovating it and build your equity. You can learn, you can practice. It's like the school of, uh, the best way to learn is they're doing. So buy a house, live in it, add an extra unit and practice what it's like to renovate. Practice what it's like to place a tenant. And you go through those motions to say, hey, is real estate investing for me? Am I enjoying it? Am I making a lot of money doing it? And so that's the place to start is to get some good debt, not bad debt, stay away from the consumer debt, stay away from all the stuff that's, that's bad debt, but debt that you use to buy cash flowing, cash producing assets, like real estate, you know, businesses, stocks. Great question, great super chat. Um, I don't know if I'm gonna get through all these questions. I gotta wrap up pretty soon here. Ah, darn it, wish I could get through them all. Uh, I'll try to go rapid fire again, but uh, skip the dishes, deduct a portion of mortgage interest due to using one of the rooms as an office. You as you could, but then when you go to sell, you're gonna have to pay, you're gonna have to re recapture or lose out on some of the capital gains exemption, right? Because it becomes a business part of your house. Watts says, are you currently doing any Airbnbs? Have your thoughts on Airbnbs changed? Uh, I do have a couple of Airbnbs. Unfortunately, it's not going very well, but it is better than the alternative, which is having a tenant that isn't paying rent or that you have to evict, right? I can go vacant any time, I'm perfectly staged, ready to sell. So I can turn on a dime. And so that's one of the advantages of the Airbnb. I think it's better if you're doing Airbnb right now to find months, days, or you know, longer than a week 
in all of your stays, that's a better way to do it. You can even rent out through Airbnb, which is fantastic, on like 28 day stays, then they renew, so they don't become tenants. That's a key piece, giving at least one night um, where they're not booked and you can have someone that stays there consistently. David says, hi Mike, I'm currently a university student in Edmonton. I'm to put together the money for a 20% down payment on 300K duplex. What are some challenges I should expect as a young landlord? Um, by the way, congratulations on 20% down, that's 60 grand you saved up, David, that's fantastic. Um, challenges you're gonna face as a young landlord, the same challenges you're gonna face if you're an old landlord. However, you're gonna get less respect from the tenant in most cases, unless it's a student rental property, in which case, you might have that camaraderie, you might be able to bond and that you're both young. Um, you might be able to get friends who are students that would live with you and you can kind of be like the house, the house den, you know, dad or the house, you know, uh, hen of the house, as you call it, and kind of keep things under control, make sure there's no crazy damages and stuff like that. So I think that it could be a great opportunity for you, David. And as a young person, they might not take you as seriously. You might not get as much um, credibility because you're so young. I, I faced a lot of that too myself in the beginning. There was a lot of, you know, people don't, don't think that you're, you deserve to have uh, property. But um, if you save for it, you've earned it, man. Like you deserve, David, to have that rental property and you just have to show that you're that much more confident and that much more um, competent as well. So you'll face some challenges, but uh, you'll learn. You have, you're so young now that by the time you get your second and third rental, you'll be a, a young pro. I did the same way at 19, my first property. Uh, Harnack says, do you offer any mentorship to financially motivate people with lots of assets wanting to get to the next level? I don't, um, unfortunately, offer any of that. I do do private borrowing and private lending. So I will borrow against some of my assets. I also do lending where it makes sense I can fund a deal. I'll get involved. And sometimes when I'm lending and I'm funding the deal, I'll act as a coach to ensure that deal goes well. But that's pretty much the extent of it. I'll do the odd coaching call here or there for like Q&A or whatever to help people through. But um, no, I'm, I'm not really interested in, in, in a job where I'm like a coach, um, motivating people to that extent. It's just not, I don't want to build a business doing that. Steven says, I forgot to mention the renovation process as well. That's what I was planning to do for my real estate deal. Thank you, by the way. No problem, Steven. Happy to help. Uh, how do you find six plus units off market? Having a hard time reaching out to owners, unlike single family, as owners typically don't reside there. Any sort of mailing or direct marketing. I mean, if you're going door knocking, you could probably get the property met. The best way to find... I think the best way to find large multifamily is to call property managers in town, smaller property managers that have, you know, six boxes and 10 boxes and 12 boxes that they manage. Talk to them and find out which owners are most likely to be willing to get an offer and tell the property manager, you'll pay them a commission if you can buy the property. And most property managers are underpaid and overworked. And if they can make five grand quick selling a building and you tell them, Hey, I'll keep you on as the manager. Guess what? They're going to love to connect you with their owners. So that's a great way to do it is pro through property managers. Um, another way is to go talk to the tenant. If it's a small building that a mom and pop manages, say, hey, you know, can I get the landlord's number? I'm really interested in buying this property. One of the tenants is gonna spill the number to you, right? Easy. So that's a way to get into the multifamily market. Hope that helps. Uh, Paul says, Mike, I purchased some Bitcoin last week. Any thoughts on Bitcoin? Uh, any thoughts? I mean, I'm not a big fan of Bitcoin, of all the cryptos you could choose, um, but I guess it is pretty mainstream. So institutions are getting behind it. PayPal's starting to accept it, right? Um, I just, I don't think a large percentage of anyone's net worth should be in, in cryptocurrency unless they have like shady motives or something or some like tax evasion type motives. Do you have luxury cars? If not, do you pay comprehensive insurance on your vehicles? Um, I don't have luxury cars. Uh, I don't pay for comprehensive insurance. I keep a nice $5,000 deductible because I don't plan to ever make a claim. If a car gets trashed, 
unless someone dies, then I'll, I'll claim, right? Something big happens. But something small, I just, I've had someone hit me before and I was like, let's just figure it out between us. That's, that's my strategy. No one wants to involve the insurance companies. They end up getting destroyed anyway in your premiums. Hey Mike, what are your thoughts on stock options trading? Already covered that question. Um, it's obviously, a lot of people want to hear that. Could you type the name of the course on stock hacking? Um, it is, I think it's literally called stock hacking. Hey Mike, what are your favorite books? I'm not getting into that today. Um, hey Mike, which books? <laughs> Have you heard of Never Split the Difference? Yes, I heard of that one, it's a good one. Uh, sorry, I can only type limited characters on here. I'm just confused on how to do it with limited budget, but do I house hack first, then lending, real estate agent, trading, stock, JV partnership? Start with house hack, that's the first place to start. Get your living costs under control, and then move on to, if you're interested in being an agent or you know, lending or whatever, it depends on where you're at in your journey, I think, and where your interests lie. 7 p.m. Central, thank you, Mike, congratulations. All right, everyone, it's been a good hour. Thank you all so much. I got through all the questions. Didn't think I'd be able to do it, but we were able to get through it together. Thank you all so much for watching, and we'll see you in the comments. See you on Instagram, at Mike Rosart, and we will also see you next week, live at 7 p.m., every single week, without fail, whether I'm on vacation or where I am. You guys know the secret to unlocking a wealthier you is to spend less, earn more, and maximize returns on the difference. Thanks, Jamie. Take care. I think I saw your super chat come in there. I really appreciate it. I think it went through. Thanks everyone. Have a good one. Happy Wednesday.